behind the whistle. Everybody has to work out what works for them. The opportunities are there if you if you want to give it a go. I can guarantee you once you get involved, um, you will you will be caught. Welcome to the very first episode of Behind the Whistle, a podcast series where we get to know the people that officiate the sports that we all love. They'll tell us their stories about how they became involved in officiating and why they continue to officiate. Hopefully by allowing them to tell their stories, we'll encourage more people to either start or continue in their officiating career. For those of us that have been officiating for some time, there are a large amount of positives that come out of officiating sports, and hopefully this podcast series will go a long way of highlighting and showing these. Our very first guest is former NRL Rugby League and current Rugby League wheelchair official, Tim Robinson. I started off by asking Tim how he started in his officiating journey. Started as a rugby league referee back in 1991 um, when I was still at school. I actually had a, a hip injury, which meant that I couldn't play any contact sport through high school. Um, so towards the end of high school, the opportunity came up to do a referees course. And um, I went and did the course. And as I say, the rest is history. Yeah. Seems to be a lot of the stories. So. You know, what initially got you into officiating? Was it, you know, the a lot of, I know a lot of people at that stage go in for the money, some for just to stay involved. What was your um, um, main driving force? Honest, when I first went into it, um, it was to get away from sport on a Thursday afternoon. I went and did the referees course instead. Um, because I couldn't play any contact sports, it was very limited to what sports that I could then go and do of a Thursday afternoon and kind of wasn't really interested in joining the chess or the tennis club. So, um, so yeah, did the referees course. Um, and then after that, uh, if you're refereeing for the money, um, I think you're mad, basically. Um, You've got to have an absolute love of the game and love of refereeing to be able to do it. Um, but, yeah, I've loved every minute of it. And I've always said that the day I go through a game and I don't get abused, I'll retire. <laughs> well, that will be an interesting uh, interesting time concerning the uh, the time that we're going through at the moment, you know, with challenges um, yes. that officials face. Um, but, you know, that's I think that's one of the ultimate goals of uh, as an official is – have those games where you have the mutual respect from players and coaches. Um, so you you started in rugby league at at you know around high school, and then obviously progressed up through your career. Um, I guess talk um, us through your your career. Yeah, I was a I'm a life member of the Bowmain Rugby League Referees Association, which was where I started refereeing. Um, and sort of progressed through the ranks there slowly over time. Um, and finally in 2015, I got, um, I, um, got accepted into the New South Wales graded referee squad um, as a, well, now they call them a sideline official, but a touch judge. Um, so that was like at that stage, that was a highlight of my career, actually getting into grade and and being able to run around with um, like the top top referees, top young up and coming referees going around and trying to show them a bit of my old old headed wisdom. Um, and then 
it was actually in 2016 I had during the off-season actually had a hamstring injury um, and I couldn't do any full-on running but um, as part of my recovery um, I got asked to go along to um, do see if I was interested in doing the wheelchair rugby league. Um, at that stage I'd never heard of wheelchair rugby league even though I'd been involved in rugby league for as a referee for over 25 years at the time um, and so I went along to have a look and see what this game was about and yeah fell in love with the game straight away and yeah st um, still there now. Excellent so uh, you know how do you find the difference obviously the you know there's the natural difference between the players but as far as the passion of the sport and the players the participants you know how do you find differences between sports uh, um, similar passion wise i don't see that there's any difference um the will players are as passionate if even more passionate um given they've been given an opportunity to play a game at a um at a representative level um and i guess the good thing about this is that it can also be played by um able-bodied athletes as well so we've got like in the Australian and New South Wales side. We've got a couple of best mates who play, um, one who's disabled, one's um, able-bodied. Um, we've got fathers and sons. We've got brothers and sisters. So we've got, like, people that are able-bodied siblings being able to play with their disabled siblings and stuff like that. So I think that there's no difference in the passion level. Um, from a referee perspective, uh physically um it's not as demanding refereeing the wheelchair game but mentally it is a lot more taxing because um there's so many more decisions you've got to make in it basically um so and the game goes a lot quicker so a set of six in wheelchair game takes roughly 30 seconds but in like in the running game you're looking at around about a minute for a set of six so um, everything happens a lot quicker. I would, I would probably imagine too that the transition from uh, NRL rugby league to NRL wheelchair requires different understanding of rules and aspects. How did you, you know, uh, handle those sort of? Yeah, I mean the the game is still based on the the laws of rugby league, um, but there are modifications given that they're playing in a wheelchair. So to do with the tackles. Um, to do with how the ball's played, um, kicking and stuff like that. Um, and there are some safety um, safety uh, requirements as well to take into account. So yeah, there are there are uh, there are quite a few differences, but the general laws of the game are exactly the same. Um, they're just modified for the wheelchair game. Yeah, I, I guess. Can you explain that a little bit more so people could maybe picture what that involves? Because, you know, we've all seen with the, the Paralympics, especially with NRL, uh, with wheelchair basketball, wheelchair rugby, where they just basically hit a lot of its collisions and then they seem to keep, you know, rolling along. How does the actual tackle aspect of NRL wheelchair work as a, um, I guess, from a pictorial perspective? Um, well, a, a tackle in the wheelchair game is uh, very it's similar to either Oz tag or League tag, where the, the players wear a tag on each shoulder. And so to complete a tackle, 
um, in general circumstances, it requires a removal of one of the tags. Um, so there are still a lot of collisions um, and they're in within the collisions, there are legal collisions and there's illegal collisions. So you've got to be able to determine the difference between um, what's a legal collision and what's an illegal collision. Um, but there are still plenty of big hits and players do regularly end up on the floor. Um, so there, there is still that aspect, but for a tackle to be completed in general circumstances, it's just uh, taking the tag off the shoulder. Okay, awesome. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it's a, an exciting sport to be involved in. Um, you know, everyone likes to see all the big collisions and it doesn't matter what sport we're playing or what sport we're watching, you know, the, the collisions is what draws people to, to sports. And, you know, it sounds like definitely in NRL wheelchair, there's plenty of those uh, within the within the game. Um, oh, absolutely. There's, there's um, plenty of contact, plenty of big hits during the game. Um, and they, as with in the running game, they tend to get more um, bigger and bigger uh, the higher the representative level you go so and the speed of the game gets a lot quicker so like from from our club level um, through to our representative we have city country in New South Wales and we have the Queensland New South Wales game the state of origin now and then through to international level um, the step up through each different levels is like the equivalent to stepping up through the grades and into um, the international level um, in the in the running game. So um, yeah, the collisions and stuff get harder and, and bigger the higher you go. And uh, I know you were fortunate enough to be selected for the well, Rugby World Cup that was supposed to be on at the end of this year. Is that correct? Uh, yes, so it's actually supposed to be heading over there, um, I think, at the end of this week. I was supposed to be heading over, um, so that would have been good to because I went over in 2017 to France um, and officiated there. And then England, unfortunately, due to the current world circumstances, got postponed, but hopefully it will go ahead in October next year. So do you, I guess... Is it, does the selection process get restarted again or are you, seeing as though you're selected um, to go to this one? I, I, to be honest, I haven't heard anything yet um, regarding that. I know for this, this World Cup, they actually did do a proper selection process for the referees, whereas the previous one, um, it was basically referees were nominated by their home country. Um, and then they then they went. So in 2017, I was lucky enough to be nominated by um, by Wheelchair Rugby League Australia, even though I'd only been officiating the game for about six months. Um, but this time we had to the home um, each home country nominated their referees, and it went to a panel, and then the panel decided which which referees were selected to go. So how do you I guess, how do you prepare for that or how do you step, you know, prepare yourself to improve and get up to that level? What do you do on a, you know, a, a weekly basis or a regular basis to keep your skills developing in that? Um, at, at the moment, it's just been uh, doing fitness um, and more a lot of mental fitness stuff as well um, through um, when I was in the New South Wales grade squad, we did a lot of 
um, what was called brain training under fatigue, um, which was doing certain fitness activities and then going to going and doing like a um, a cognitive or a mental activity, um, and trying to train yourself to cope with fatigue and still being able to make decisions. Um, so I do I do some of that sort of training and. Um, re regularly looking at rule books, the rule, the laws of the game, just to keep updated with any changes or just to refresh myself of everything, especially being in the circumstances where we are, where we can't actually have a game at the moment. Um, and also I'll go back and I'll watch, quite often watch videos of um, not necessarily games I've been involved in, but they could be um, English games, they could be French games, they could be internationals, just watching the games and seeing how they were officiated by other people, just um, to see where, what I would have done in certain situations, to see what I can pick up from how other referees officiate. Um, so that hopefully once we get started again, I can pretty much hit the ground running and get back into it. Excellent. So you're, you know, you're locally in, Sydney, Australia. Um, yes. At the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and so you just normally during a normal seat year, you'd referee the local competition, um, whatever the what is it, the regional competition that they run in around Sydney. Yeah, yeah, we've got um, like our main our main competition each year is held at Menai, our New South Wales wheelchair rugby league competition, and that's divided up into a tier one or first grade and a tier two second grade competition. Um, so the tier two competition is more for um, our young up and coming and developing players to come through. Um, and then our tier one, that's our full on, all our representative players. And um, so that's that's our top competition. Um, at the moment, I, I referee in both competitions, but I also play in the tier one competition as well. Um, and then during the season, then we have, um, as I said before, we have the country city game, and then we have like the, well, supposed to have the state of origin game um, in July, but unfortunately that's been postponed as well this year due to COVID. So we're hoping that um, that may happen um, I don't know if it'll happen before Christmas um, due to so much happening at this time of the year and having to get everything organised, but hopefully sometime maybe in the new year we might get um, the State of Origin game played as well. Awesome. So how do you, you know, you mentioned that you play play as well as officiate. Does that mean that at times you'll officiate people that you've played against in within that yeah, same competition? Yeah, yeah. Um, because we only really have the, the, the two competitions in Sydney, um, we do have a couple of other development competitions that we play, but um, we only have the two, at this stage, the two main competitions. Um, so yeah, generally the way it worked was when I was, um, because we had um, three teams this year in our T1 comp, um, so one team always had the bye. So whatever week that I had the bye, I would generally referee um, referee the other game. How do you find playing also helps your officiating, getting a player's um, perspective? And it did. It did help me a lot. Just um, being able to see things from a different perspective um, and kind of understand how things happen on, during the game. Um, so understanding things, yeah, a bit from the player's perspective, but 
gen generally just giving you a bit of a different view on how things happen out there. So that that definitely helps. Um, how how do you balance your you know, I guess your professional life with your you know your passion for Arrow wheelchair, your development, your opportunities and things. Um, what do you? I guess what do you do for a, a full time or a, you know a working life? Um, I'm a driver on the Sydney Light Rail, um, so that is shift work. So unfortunately, it does does get a bit difficult. Sometimes the moons do align, and my shifts work with. Um, so I might be on morning shifts at the time and when we have training of a night and stuff like that. So that, that worked out well and it lines up with when the games are. But other times I've had to miss games because I've had to work. Um, so it's just a matter of trying to balance around and try and do some do some shift swaps and stuff at work to be able to uh, to be able to organise it. And have you found that you've had um, you've been able to take skills that you've developed from your officiating career into your working career or from, you know, from your working to officiating. Um, have uh, you found you've got... Probably more the officiating into working. Um, probably two major things is currently at the moment because of the shift work, um, my ability to be able to cope with fatigue and um, being able to perform under fatigue, which I've learned from my training and from like refereeing and stuff, uh, that's definitely helped. Um, so being able to notice when I am getting fatigued and how to deal with it and how to um, stop the onset of it. Um, and then the other thing, I guess, has been um, my trying to keep a cool head under pressure because when you're refereeing, you've got to try and um, keep everything in check um, to and doesn't matter what situation's happening, you've got to be able to try, still be able to make decisions and come up with the right decision, hopefully. Um, so that's gone through into my, tried to go through into my working life as well, where I try to keep cool under pressure. Um, at the moment when like driving and stuff like that, you have incidents with like cars running in front of you, people running in front of you, and it's just a matter of trying to be able to keep cool when things happen and just react to the situation um, as it happens, I'd, I'd imagine being a, on the light rail too. You're looking at and anticipating what other people may be doing as you're driving the the light rail, which is similar to what's happening in your, you know, in a game. You're anticipating to an extent. You're anticipating what the players are likely to do, so you know where to, you know, to put your vision and to what to look for. Oh, absolutely, and and even even part of that um, is like with like generally refereeing you develop very good peripheral vision being able to see things out the corner of your eye and stuff so that comes in handy when you're driving as well um so yeah so that's definitely um been a help to you with the driving too so with your you know learning to um perform under fatigue and under pressure and what have you developed any techniques that help you with those situations or being becoming aware that you're getting tired and under um, you know fatigued do you, are there any techniques that you can you know advise people that maybe might work for them as well um well it's probably the first thing is recognizing when you are becoming fatigued if you can recognize it well then you can um take steps to try and delay the onset um what I try to do when I'm refereeing is make the most 
of downtime in the game. Um, so, like, after a try scored, when you're waiting for the conversion, try to switch off and not be focusing on anything much, um, just basically resetting your, resetting your mind, getting ready for the next bit. Um, during the game, if you have any downtime, doing the same thing. And I guess it's the same thing with the, um, with the driving. It's um, when I get to a platform or stuff like that, um, it's basically trying to switch off for the 30 seconds I've got sitting there before I've got to go again. So um, try, trying to minimise minimize the time that you're performing at your... Um, at your peak mental capacity so that you can try and extend um, extend your um, ability to perform at the top level and delay the on onset of the fatigue. Um, also, it's things like just making sure that eating properly, being well hydrated. Um, if you go into a game and you haven't hydrated properly, well, I can guarantee you that you're not going to be able to um, to keep up with the game, you're not going to be able to keep up um, to delay the onset of fatigue. In fact, it's going to happen quicker. Um, so there's little things like that, just making sure you're keeping on top of um, your preparation for the game as well. Um, even things like getting enough sleep, just making sure that you're looking after yourself um, can all help towards being able to perform better for longer. And yeah, I would assume you've you've developed techniques that work for you just through trial and error over your your career to see what works to help prepare for for games and and those sort of things. Oh, oh definitely. I mean, every every and I I learned through the grade squad. Every person um, prepares differently. Or there's and you hear stories even from NRL players that some like to eat certain foods before a game, others like to eat other foods. So. Everybody has to work out what works for them. Um, and that's not just preparation for a game and, and dealing with the fatigue. That's just in your general game management. Um, like the way I do something in the game is not going to work for someone else. Um, so you have to find what works for you um, and, and, and try and stick to that and try and improve on that all the time. What? Uh, you know, what resources or advice other officials did you, I guess, lean on throughout your career to help you, you know, understand and work out what works for you? Did you have structures in place that helped you throughout your career? Um, in the, like, in my district days at Balmain, there was a few few specific um, people that I always sought counsel with. Um that if I was having issues or anything or I wanted some advice, I would go to them. Um, but I've also um, believed that there's no such thing as bad advice. Um, it's how you use the advice which is, determines whether it's good for you or not um, because the best piece of advice for you may not be the best piece of advice for me. So um, I always listen to all the advice that I get then I pick through what is going to be best for me, what's best going to suit the way I officiate or even in my professional life, the way I, um, the way I work, the way I drive and stuff like that. I, I always listen to every advice, but I 
I basically choose what I'm going to use and what's going to be best for me. And preparation is no different. As I said, what works for one person, someone might be able to sit up all night watching TV and then get up and perform well the next morning, whereas other people like to go to bed and like have like 10, 10 hours sleep or something before a big game. So everyone's different. Um, and um, it's all about picking what's best for you and taking whatever advice you get and picking which advice is going to be best for you as well. Excellent. That's great advice to have to pass on to people. If there was people considering to become, you know, looking at becoming an NRL uh, wheelchair official or somebody that's just started off in their career, what advice would you give to them, in, you know, Obviously, with the same context in mind that, you know, all advice is good advice and they can take pizza pieces. But is there anything that you could pass on to them to encourage them to keep going in their journey or even to take it on? Um, what would you say to somebody considering becoming, a you know, an NRL wheelchair official? Um, well, my generally when I'm when I'm coaching young referees, uh, my first bit of advice is exactly that. Um, listen to everybody, but just pick through what you think will work for you. Um, and my second bit is generally, and it's the way I try to referee, it's keep it, try to keep it simple. Um, just try to referee what happens. Don't, don't go into a game with preconceived ideas because as soon as you do that, um, you're almost going to force them to happen because you're going to change the way you referee because you're expecting those things to happen. Um, go, go out, referee every game as though it's a new game and just keep it as simple as possible. Um, and the last thing is when you're a young up-and-coming referee, as I said, listen to advice, but don't watch the NRL game and think that's how you should be refereeing because they are two completely different games. The referees referee them very differently. They're still the same laws of the game essentially, but the way you're refereeing um, an NRL game is completely different to the way you referee a, a junior game. So, um, so that's where it comes down to like taking advice and watching people, but molding things to how to your specific level and what you're doing at the time and how it's going to work for you great that's excellent um now just one final question and thanks for your time today if there was one thing that you could improve in regards to the overall call it perception of officials you know what would that be or is you know yeah what what would your one ideal um thing that you could do to improve officiating general if you had you know unlimited resources um from a, from a perception point of view i would try and get rid of the um the um and a lot of this is like with the media a referee makes one mistake and they're almost hung drawn and quartered for it um everyone makes mistakes players make how many mistakes a game who knows um, but it's very rare that a team goes through a game without making any mistakes. Um, referees, no different. Referees are going to make mistakes. Um, and if it can be accepted that referees do make mistakes because they're human and um, treat them the same as when a player makes a mistake, it's like, oh, well, 
mate, you'll be right next week. You'll go out and you'll you'll um, you'll kill it next week. You'll you'll you, you won't make the same mistake again. But you have a referee makes a mistake, and then it's like, oh well, he should be dropped next week. And what's he doing, refereeing this grade? He's not up to it. This and that. So. Um, It'd be nice if the referees were treated the same as the players in that sort of respect. And I think if that changed, um, a lot of the pressure on junior referees and our struggle to get the retention of junior referees would improve as well because the focus wouldn't be on junior referees making mistakes. Um, because I know from my experience when I was coming through as a junior referee, you made one mistake in the under-60s game and you were basically bashed from pillar to post by the parents on the sideline because that's what, that was what they saw happen to the NRL referees or the first-grade referees back in those days when they made a mistake. So they just mimic what happens. Um, so if we could change that, I think you would change the whole perception throughout the all grades and it would be a lot easier to be able to retain young referees um, if they know they can go through the game and they can learn by, yeah, you learn by making mistakes and um, they're not going to be bashed from pillar to post for it. And, you know, junior referees are the lifeblood of the refereeing you know, association. We, you know, we won't have, we don't get the high quality NRL officials if we don't have the juniors coming up the ranks and developing. And we need to do what we can to encourage the junior referees to stay, you know, to first of all become a referee and then to stay around and develop their skills. You know, we do need to work with parents, players, coaches, um, and do more, as you say, more of an encouragement on the on their referees uh, to help them grow as opposed to, um, you know, being condescending to them or, you know, putting them down when they oh. make, you know, a mistake during a game. Yeah, and that's that's a hundred percent right. And I mean, a lot of there there are a lot of improvements on it. I know there's a lot of the um, NRL clubs who, as part of their junior development programs, they put their um, junior players through referees courses just to give them a better understanding of the laws of the game. Um, because there are so many, I mean, there's so many players out there who think they know the laws of the game, but they actually don't when it comes down to it. Um, and it's something that we're um, trying to going to try and push with the wheelchair game is that all representative players do a um, do a wheelchair rugby league referees course, and they assist by refereeing the lower um, the lower grades and the development development grades and stuff like that. So that um, a it takes the pressure off because we we, are, we we only have a limited supply at the moment of um, of referees in our game. So if we can be, be using the referees we've got for more of our um, higher grades and they don't have to be worrying about doing the lower grades every week um, because we can cover that by our representative players helping out. Um, but it also gives them a better perspective because suddenly they realise that um, no, I'm not actually picking on them. What I'm actually doing is just applying the laws of the game. So um, it works. It works both ways because it gives the players a different perspective, and then it also can help out because you can get you can get new referees about out of it because you you have probably hundreds 
maybe a hundred or so um, junior rep players in a club and at any one time, but probably maybe 10 of them might go on to higher grades as a player. Um, so if they've got the potential of a pathway of becoming a referee as well, well, that can help out as well. And it allows them to stay involved with their sport that they're passionate about if they you know, their playing career doesn't develop in the trajectory that you oh, know, they'd like. So. I mean, it, it might mean you can, you can go on and instead of playing in first grade, you might end up refereeing first grade. Um, so, and I mean, through me refereeing, I mean, I've done, I've refereed a World Cup final, um, which when I started refereeing nearly 30 years ago, I probably never even dreamed of. Um, but yeah, I've now refereed a World Cup final and will hopefully next year go to, go to my second World Cup. So um, the opportunities are definitely there. And it's one thing I've been, I've been trying to push with trying to get referees for us is that there are massive opportunities in our game to go to, um, whether it be state of origin level, international level or World Cup level. So um, the opportunities are there if you, if you want to give it a go. And the beauty of being involved in the smaller niche sports is the pool of officials is smaller. So the opportunities there are actually greater for you to, you know, you showed that you're developing and getting to a level, having a smaller pool, a pool size of officials actually makes those opportunities uh, to an extent easier to get to from a pure numbers perspective. Your competition is, I guess, reduced. Oh, oh definitely. Yeah, there's the competition is reduced, but because, and because of that, um, there's also um, the opportunity to progress quicker um, and not just because of the lack of numbers, but because you can get more one-on-one -on -one focus and attention with you when you're coming through um, because there aren't that many referees that we have to watch. So if there's a new referee, I can spend a lot more time or some of our other people can spend a lot more time with them to try and develop them and get them, get them through quicker. Excellent. Um, just, I guess, you know, I just want to thank you for the time today. And, you know, you've given some really good advice and some real um, good information for people that are thinking about getting involved. Is there anything, any last comments you want to ha say or anything else you want to, you know, mention to anyone who may be interested in becoming an NRL wheelchair uh, referee? Come and give it a go. Um, if nothing else, come and have a look at the game for a start. Um, because generally anybody I've got to actually come down and look at the game, they have fallen in love with it and realised that, wow, this is, this might be a game that they've never really seen or heard of before. Um, but very few people that come and watch it don't get hooked. Um, so come and check it out. Give it a go. Um, come and if you like, when I'm refereeing a game, walk up and down the sideline with me and see see what happens. Um, but I, I can guarantee you, once you once you get involved, um, you will you will be hooked. Great. So thanks again for your time, Tim. Um, you know, I've really appreciated hearing the, your side of story and your and about your journey and you know the advice that we can pass on to to officials um, and that are looking at. You. So uh, thanks again. Thanks for coming on. Okay, not a problem. Thanks for having me. 
Tim's provided some practical advice and a great encouragement for anyone who wants to become involved as a sports official. If you are interested in becoming a sports official but not quite sure where to start, head to our website, sportscollaboration.com, where we're building an online directory with links and contact details for the various sports so you can reach out and start your own journey. Who knows where your journey may take you. On the website, you can also join our mailing list to be notified when future podcast episodes are published. Feel free to also use the feedback section to send in your feedback about this episode and future episodes, including any particular sports officials that you would like to hear from, and we'll reach out and see if they would be willing to come on and talk about their journey. I'll leave you with this piece of advice from Tim. I can guarantee you once you get involved, um, you will you will be talking.